people really do stop me in the grocery store and tell me that they either liked something that I did or that they thought I got it wrong or that we really should be tackling this or we're not focusing enough on whatever issue is important to them. And I like that. I like that people can find me and tell me what they think I'm doing right or wrong. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Today, we take a little break from our regular programming to sit down with Jane Lindholm, the Vermont public radio legend whose podcast, But Why, has over 3.5 million downloads. Welcome. This is Sam Roachgerber and Dave Bradbury recording from the Consolidated Communications Technology Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Hi, Jane. Hi, it's such a pleasure to be here. Jane, welcome. We're, we're thrilled. Thank we're you. starstruck today, I think. It's, uh, I'm going to be stumbling a lot. But. Well, so am I. I don't usually have to answer the questions. I, I can see I can see the pregame jitters here, so yep. we, we got her. We're let's, in the zone. Let's, let's, let's go right see to it. See if you it. can make me cry. <laughs> uh, you wouldn't be the first. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Um, Jane, what do you love about Vermont? And is it special? Are we special? Yes and no. The favorite answer of every host of everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we are special and we should feel special because you want to live in a place that feels special and that you feel like you're doing something valuable and important. So, of course, we're special. I think there is that idea of Vermont exceptionalism. And you sometimes hear people say it. We mock it a little bit, but you'll hear people say, as goes Vermont, so goes the nation. And sometimes that's true. We were ahead of the curve on things like same-sex marriage or civil unions. We've been ahead of the curve on um, some other social issues. But it's also a little bit laughable when you look at some of the technologies that other places have had. I mean, I moved back to Vermont 12 years ago from Los Angeles. And I feel like the food cart movement was passe in L.A. or just part of life when I was there and had been for years. So and then true. we got food carts in Vermont six years later. And people were like, did you hear about this thing called food carts? Everyone's like, losing their shit over the food yeah. carts in like it, 2011. Right. <laughs> well, plus these ones are jacked up with mud tires and four-wheel drive, right? <laughs> right, right. And it's like we have food that's not American in this food truck. It's like, yeah, welcome to the rest of the world. Well, so Sometimes we're so far behind we're ahead. Sure. Again, that's how we like to think of ourselves. (laughs) But so, I mean, yeah, I think we're special. I think we have a small enough population and a small enough state that we really can feel like a community sometimes. And that makes us special in ways that a lot of the other places I've lived really just don't have that ability. But I think we sometimes think we're more special than we are. And is that community part what you love about it? Yeah, I love that. And I love that there's real access to power here. You know, in other places that I've worked... You can't call up the governor and say, hey, would you like to be on Vermont Edition next week? You have to go through PR and you submit a form and maybe they get back to you. And that's not the way it works here. And it's not the way it works for people in the media either. I mean, again, it's a cliche, but people really do stop me in the grocery store and tell me that they either liked something that I did or that they thought I got it wrong or that we really should be tackling this or we're not focusing enough on whatever issue is important to them. And I like that. I like that people can find me and tell me what they think I'm doing right or wrong. Well, that's pretty. That's pretty awesome of you to encourage that. And I don't have a choice. I mean, people are going to do it. You're rolling around Moncton, right? You're not. (laughs) It's tough to duck people here. Plus, I now have purple hair, so I'm really hard to uh, hard to miss. Love the purple hair, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, you just gave Taylor your card. 
right? I mean, yeah. Taylor's not allowed to talk on this program, but he engineers everything. <laughs> so he's doing all the hard stuff. Especially students, though. I, I really feel like every student who asks me to do anything, pretty much, I'll say yes, because how else do we learn but through connections and through being able to see what people are doing professionally and how you might fit in. And so anybody who wants to come shadow Vermont Edition, we always say yes. Yeah, we're suckers it, for Dave, entrepreneurs. we should have done that. Uh, student, we have like, I don't know, 50 students a year that flow through yeah. as interns for companies or the Vermont Technology Council underwrites membership, basically pays for their coffee around here, which is really fantastic because entrepreneurism isn't for everybody. So yeah, once you, I mean, sometimes what you learn you don't want to be. Yeah, is which is equally important, important. Right? yeah. Was there something you didn't want to be? What was the worst job you had? Ah, uh, let me think. Just give me one second. Okay, two questions. Sorry, I'm terrible Rapid at this. Fire. I'm terrible. I'm at this not thing. sure I've ever had a bad job. I used to coach sports at a summer camp, and that was great. I got to be outside all the time and work with kids. I was a waitress a lot in the summers, and boy, that job was in some ways the hardest job I ever had, and really taught me a lot. Um, I worked in the dining halls at Middlebury College between high school and college, and I really, I really loved the juxtaposition of sort of blue collar and white collar that I got to experience there, and thinking about the ways that people thought they knew who I was because of the position that I was holding versus how I thought of myself. You know, I was about to head off to Harvard, and yet I was being treated like I didn't have anything better to do with my my life than work in a dining hall. And I just, I really appreciated being able to get that perspective. That's interesting. So I was a, a chambermaid at um, the Lord Jeffrey Inn at Amherst College. So it was the Similar, same thing. Yeah. I was like headed to Northeastern, but it's funny, you know, I, I have people that treated me wonderfully right. and folks that, that did not. And it's a little bit of a wake up call. Yeah. And you hope then that you go out in the world and treat people better because you realize that, you know, the thing that you know about them is not their whole life. Totally. Right. And you've walked in their shoes in a way and empathy and, and yeah. understanding. Um, I need to just rewind. So about 10 years ago, um, just when Vermont Edition, I think, was was a weekly or starting, you came to Farrell Hall at EVM and you and I had a an I interview. Mm-hmm. Um, I had just been asked to step into this sort of failing thing called VSED and this thing called entrepreneurship, and it was exciting. Um, did you really think we'd be around 10 or 11 years later? <laughs> I don't truth. make predictions like truth. that. Yeah. No question, Dave. Yeah, I did, because I thought, boy, this is something that um, you know, it sort of hit at the right time, and it felt like there was an appetite for it, and, and that appetite hasn't decreased in any way. And as we think more about technological advances and how people can do different kinds of work, it just makes sense to have... A sort of a, an incubator and a place that people can start and grow. So yeah, I mean, it seemed like managed correctly, it could be a great success. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure until about four or five years ago. So I'm glad you had the early faith here. <laughs> Weren't you in like a basement? Didn't didn't we have yeah, to look Farrell up Hall, to the well, windows? We called the garden level. Sure. Um, okay. That's my. That's the only thing I really yeah, remember I don't know, about maybe it. Maybe it's a real estate background. But yeah. You know. And then didn't you get Scout Coffee at some point? I was or some coffee shop. I was so yeah. We've had of. a number of coffee. Yeah, coffee's think, really think, tough. When you have 190 members and, you know, the tea and coffee sort of preferences are over the top. You think keeping the air temperature comfortable for everybody is challenging. Try, try using whatever they use for rocket fuel and trying <laughs> right. to balance that. Like We're on Vivid right now. 
It's Ooh, going over pretty well. That's local, yeah. right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, we have no no coffee shop, no retail anywhere near us at VPR, and so it's I am very jealous of people yeah, you guys that have are out there, good huh? coffee. Yeah. yeah, we just uh, a former member came back and he just said uh, he went to work for the New York Times. He's like, your coffee's better than the New York Times. <laughs> See, Vermont is special. I, I was like, that's going to go on the, the humble brag sheet, right? It's <laughs> a good one. We should put that on our business cards. All right. Um, let's oh. talk. We have Jane yeah, here. I know. So quick. Panicking. Jane, how did you get to VBR? What was your sort of background? What, what led you to where you are now? I studied anthropology as an undergrad in college, and that made me the black sheep in the family because everybody else in my family studied either English or literature. And boy, did I go out on a limb with anthropology. (laughs) And I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but um, I knew I really appreciated this idea of studying why people behave the way we do and how we got to this place in our society and our culture. And so that's what I studied. I studied abroad in college as well in um, Chile, and I had studied in as an exchange student in Nairobi, Kenya, in high school. And so I wanted to be able to mix travel and, um, and academics. Um, and then I also wrote for Let's Go Travel Guides. So I was a research writer and an editor. And after college, I went to write one more book for Let's Go in Spain. And um, there was a, a tragedy, actually, a, one of my very close friends, Haley Sorti, who was also a travel writer for Let's Go, she was working in Peru, and I was working in Spain, where she had studied. We were trying to sort of swap locations. And five days after graduation, she was killed in a bus crash in oh, Peru. Oh, my God. And so I came home and, and didn't finish my route in Spain and was totally adrift. Just I, had no idea what I was going to do and was... You know, obviously grieving. Haley Surti was this amazing, amazing person. I mean, you talk about people who are entrepreneurs, and she was going to just do these amazing things in the world, um, mostly in the fields of poverty and child education and global health. So I shake you. Yeah, it really did. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have a job plan. I had sort of planned out my summer, and that was as far ahead as I was thinking. And so I was back home in uh, my parents' house in Cornwall, Vermont. And I was waitressing. And I got a call from a producer at NPR in Washington. And actually left a voicemail with my stepmother. And I thought it was a joke. I thought it was a friend who was trying to cheer me up in this sort of terrible way. But it was real. And, and she said, um, I'd like to offer you an internship at NPR. Can you come to Washington in the next couple of weeks? And I was like, yeah. And she said, OK, well, it's unpaid. And I said, oh, I can't. I can't do it unpaid. And she said, okay, we'll pay you. You knew your worth even back then, right? Well, I mean, yeah. I, I didn't have, it, was, it wasn't was a choice. choice. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't like, wasn't you better pay me. Tech. I'm really good. It was like, I, I don't have any money. So she said, we'll pay you, um, you know, we'll pay you to be our intern. So I moved out to Washington, D.C. And she had found my resume under a pile of other resumes. I hadn't actually applied for an internship, but I had sent a resume to NPR, you know, like every backseat listener kid that was like, I really love this station. I'd be really good. Is there anything I could do for work? I'd love to read that cover letter. (laughs) I don't even know what I said. I had no experience. I didn't do journalism in college, but I had the travel. I had um, this understanding of human society and how we structure our cultures. And the show that I worked for was called Radio Expeditions, which was a co-production of the National Geographic Society and NPR. 
And it was this idea that they'd go out with explorers and adventurers and scientists and then bring back these sound-rich pieces. So that was how I got my start at NPR, and it was fabulous. That sounds pretty cool. It was great. I did that for a year and a half. Um, how could you not fall in love with it, huh? Yeah, and I also worked for Weekend Edition Saturday and Talk of the Nation. I did a lot of overtime work to make some more money, and I waitressed at a folk music club. And then I, in the meantime, I also wrote one more book for Let's Go in Chile. And then I left NPR to go write a book in Australia for Let's Go. And then got Let's Go to pay for my ticket from Australia to Bangkok, Thailand, and to give me an open jaw ticket home from Beijing to Boston. And she told us she's not an entrepreneur, Dave. <laughs> oh, Are you My head's exploding. Me? We need a map <laughs> with little pins, me? like where in the world is Jane? It was great. I did that for the rest of the year from January till about um, September or October, and then came home and needed a job and uh, got hired by Marketplace in Los Angeles. Fantastic. Wow. Um, why does public radio matter today? Well, we're in our fun drive, so you've asked this at the perfect time. I am primed <laughs> to tell you why public radio matters. I think it matters because it really is independent journalism, and it's journalism with a mission, and the mission is to better inform the public and to engage the public. And for us at VPR, it's specifically to engage Vermonters and people in our region to better understand what's happening in our region and who we are, which again is you know, anthropology. It's back to anthropology. We need to understand why we behave the way we do in order to then either make changes or preserve what we care about. And because that's the only thing that we're supposed to do at VPR, we take it really seriously. We don't have anybody who's telling us, you can't do this, or you need to have this slant, or any owners who can say, you know, this is the framework we want you to work with. So I think independent journalism is even more important now than ever because there is such a cacophony of voices that you need to know who you can trust. And I think it's still true that you can turn to public radio and know that know what you're getting and know totally, you can trust right? them. I mean, it's so bad they have that infographic going around, like you could check your news source. Is it in the middle, left, right? right? Yeah. And, um, yeah. And I, I mean, VPR and public radio shouldn't be your only source of news and information, but I think it gives you one sort of balanced source, and then you pick and choose what else you want and other voices that you I like think the are Daily valuable. Mail out of the UK for the for the good stuff. Yeah, People <laughs> Magazine basically for the UK. It's it's, it's a hoot. Um, <laughs> nice. So, Jane, for folks that might not know, what is Vermont Edition? Vermont Edition is a daily news magazine on VPR. I host it Monday through Thursday, and Bob Kinzel hosts on Friday. And we are sort of a call-in hybrid, so it's an interview show with some other segments sometimes, and we take calls. And so that, that I really love because it has to be live, and we're in this era of podcasts and on-demand, and I like Vermont Edition because we still engage people live, in person, we ask them to have a conversation with us. Today, we did one on potholes, and you know, oh my god, everybody Great. has a pothole story. So you know that you're going to engage people all together at this one time that we're all having this shared experience. And I just, I love that. I love that we still have that, that space. That scares the crap out of Dave and I. Doing live potholes or doing live? Yeah, either Both, one. Honestly, well, I was just thinking back say. to there's a little trauma when you go there. You just, you know, you want to get it right and not embarrass yourself. Um, I save embarrassing myself for the start here podcast so. yeah yeah i'd say taylor edits out probably 60 percent of what we say <laughs> which is great Just but kidding. that's also what i like about live radio you know you're having a conversation that you can trust because it's live so what people are saying is what they're actually totally, saying it's authentic and you know also reminds us you know what we are imperfect and like the standard it, it, the world is so bloody unforgiving the the tinder is mm-hmm. dry the 
it's tough to have a free thought that's not tempered maybe. And I, I have to feel that it just, you know, it just sort of tempers things a little bit. And um, I'm, I'm actually concerned about real creative thought and change. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at the, the sandbox of ideas here that, you know, if, the, if it starts getting a little bit narrower, you might not take the risk. We see that in entrepreneurship. People, you know, the biggest thing entrepreneurs have is curiosity and mm-hmm. fearlessness. Mm-hmm. Right. And they try to put that together and, and timing. So. Yeah, and now that you can make all your media choices based on what you want and the ideas that you already have, we're narrowing that scope in in journalism and in media too because people can just seek out the opinions and the voices that already confirm what they believe, and that's dangerous. Oh, but it's for our benefit. It's called personalization, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I hate that. Like, I, I, Anyway. On the other hand, I mean, you have voices that you could never have heard before because we have all of these platforms that people can share their own voices. And that's really valuable. It's just picking through the noise and knowing who to trust. And it's really hard. It it is. Um, Can you tell us about But Why? Yeah. What it is, why you started it? But Why is a podcast for curious kids. And I make it with Melody Beaudet, and we make it through VPR. And it comes out every two weeks. It's led by kids from around the world. So they send us questions, and we, we have them record their questions by asking an adult to record them on a smartphone. And so then the kids tell us their name and age and where they're from, and they send us their questions. And then Melody and I try to figure out which ones we can actually answer and go find experts or cool people to help answer those questions. And then we make this podcast out of it. And so far, I've been on the air, on the air, quote, for two and a half years, and we've had almost 4,000 questions from kids in all 50 states and more than 50 countries. Did you anticipate that? Like, no. Is that just shocking to you? It's fabulous. I mean, I anticipated that in order to have a podcast that was successful, that was made for the niche audience, if you can call kids a niche audience, we were going to have to expand beyond Vermont. So it was going to have to not be a Vermont-focused podcast. And it would have to appeal to kids all over the country. And we thought beyond this country as well, in the sense that we wanted to make it as inclusive as possible. But no, we didn't think it would be as successful as it's been. I don't think anybody anticipated that. Yeah. I mean, it's like when it's one of the best things about what was it? Kids say the darnest things, you Mm -hmm. know, that the success from that. I just remember thinking it was just the best. It was such a funny, relatable, you know, everyone who has raised a child or has a niece or nephew or whatever knows these funny questions they ask. So it's, you know, I listened to a few episodes and I, I don't have kids, but I, I was like, wow, this is beautiful because it appeals to children. It's for children, but I wouldn't go nuts listening to that as an adult, you know, and it's, that's really that's hard the good to stuff achieve. When the adults like consume it and love it as much. Well, adults are the gatekeepers still to children's media. So if the adults hate what you're putting out, it's not going to get to the kids. And, you know, so Melody and I make stuff that we enjoy as parents and as media people and journalists because we, the two of us personally, don't love the stuff that's super loud and um, kind of like got this very sort of kidsy voice. Like that's just not who we are or what we like to listen to. So we're, we're definitely trying to appeal to parents who don't want to have something that drives them nuts. Right. Do you think you could have done this without having had your experiences as a parent? Yes. Uh, I had, I started thinking of it when my son was too young to ask, but why? So it wasn't coming from the experience of having that child who's always asking that. 
I think I couldn't have done it if I hadn't cultivated my own sense of curiosity for my entire career. Because I think if you're a curious person, it doesn't matter whether you're a kid or an adult. And so that was, I think, the important life experience for me was just feeling curious about the world around me. And how important is it to have a partner? Because Sam told me this morning she'd rather do this podcast alone, and I (laughs) I think it's a terrible mistake. So... (laughs) Well, I made But Why partly because I really wanted a creative outlet that felt like my own. And so I really wanted that ownership piece of it. But if I wasn't working with Melody, the podcast would not be nearly as good as it is. Melody is such a fabulous partner. And I think we work well together and work well off each other. So, yeah, Sam, I wouldn't make it without Dave if I were you. Fine, Jane. I'll take that $20 bill after. (laughs) There we go. Boom. I'll keep him around a little while longer. Um. So you said you, you guys kind of seek out experts in the field and, you know, answer some of it yourselves. And how long does it, you say that comes out every two weeks, how much time goes into the one episode? It's about 40 hours of work for one episode. Wow. So I work about 10 hours a week on the podcast. And until very recently, Melody worked 10 hours a week. And so it's the two of us and it comes out every two weeks. So that's 40 hours of work. Um, Melody now has upped her hours to about 20, so she so we're hoping to do more with the podcast and make the podcast actually a little bit shorter. I think if we have more time, it can be more concise, mm. paradoxically. But yeah, it's about it's a lot, a lot of time to put something together, as you know, that yeah. is well-researched and sounds good and is thoughtful. Totally. It's, you got to be accurate, too, with that. There's a lot of pressure to be accurate. Yeah, you have some minds you could misinform, so... You know, there's, yeah. There's, I mean... We could give bad advice to an entrepreneur and, yeah, we'll get over it, right? Yeah. They'll, they'll get over it too, but, you know. Well, and kids keep you honest. I mean, if you're not doing something right, kids, they have no problem telling you when you're doing something right or Love wrong. It. So, yeah, we, we like getting feedback because we know it's honest. Love it. And talk about um, sort of how you as an artist, as, a, as an entrepreneur in this regard, have kept certain uh, rights or ownership over the intellectual property because... Um, that can be different in other instances. Could you just talk about that innovation? Yeah, I mean, I come from a radio world and a radio background. And in radio, you need broadcast towers. You need a station with all of the equipment to broadcast. You need all of this infrastructure, and that's expensive. And so if you want to start a new show, you're doing it with this structured partner, like, like a station like VPR. And you can't do it without them. Podcasting is different. As you've said, anybody can start a podcast. There's a very low barrier to entry. And so when I conceived of But Why, I went to VPR and said, I'm going to make this podcast, and I'm either going to make it with you or without you. And I had another potential partner in the wings, which is always helpful when you're in job negotiations. (laughs) And so I said, look, they're going to pay me to make this podcast. I'd rather make it with you because I think it would be a good beneficial partnership for us. I think I can, you know, I was trying to sell it to VPR in the sense that here's something that can take our brand beyond Vermont. It can appeal to not just kids, but to that demographic that we're all looking for of the, you know, 25 to 40 year olds, which is a harder demographic in public radio to reach. And I think it will be a great program for us to do together. But I have some stipulations, or I'll go with this other partner, and one of them is that I I want to own the intellectual property rights because I don't have to make this with you. We can I can make it on my own. So it feels like a different business model. And I think because there was not a lot of hope for a 
great success. And we had never done a podcast first program at VPR. It was like, yeah, okay, we'll give it a shot. I don't think they'd do that again. I don't think they would necessarily allow an, an independent producer who was also a full-time employee to have mm. the rights of right. a show How that we're making that together. Out? Yeah. It's, a, a it's difficult there. I think too. And yeah, trust. And you know, I think none of us really knew what we were getting into. So it was yeah. like, well, well, plus timing be. plays a role too. Right. I mean, as, as mm-hmm. certainly the media business model has been challenged and public support wanes and ebbs and flows and whatnot that, um, you know, how you come up with a construct that allows folks to take a shared risk, uh, shared opportunity. I mean, entrepreneurship's about when to get in and when to get out. Yeah. So uh, by and large, um, oh, that's really exciting. Good for you for doing that. Well, and good for VPR. I mean, I think, you know. Totally. Yes, it seemed like a low-risk venture, but it also seemed like when they were willing to let me try and to take 20, you know, 20% of my time at VPR to devote to this thing that nobody was sure how it would work out. And then to continue devoting resources. I mean, the station is devoting resources to it and making sure that it's successful and we're doing live shows now. So I really credit VPR for saying, yeah, okay, sounds great. Thanks for bringing it to us. We'll try to figure out if we can make this work. And, you know, I think if you have that good partnership, it's it's successful because of that partnership, not because either one of us could do it on our own. Yeah, and, you know, for Dave and I, we always, if we say yes to one thing, we have to say no to something else, right? So right. that's sort of weighing your options in that regard is is hard. And, um, you know, you just kind of have to try it and see if it sticks, right? Yeah, and be willing to ditch it if it's not working. Totally, yeah. We go on summer hiatus. I think that's the term we use, right? Mostly, just, mostly just Taylor, to, mostly to Taylor clear, leaves and we don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> just for the podcast, Just for the podcast, exactly. <laughs> so speaking of podcasts, like why is – why is podcast the 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 so popular and effective as today? I mean, it just seems like that's how people want to consume. Do you have any insight as to why? I mean, I think we're, we live in an on-demand culture, so everybody wants what they want when they want it, and that goes for audio too. And so everybody wants to be able to listen to what they're interested in on their time. And some things that doesn't work for, you know, newscasts I think are best consumed close to the news. So you want to hear the most recent information. Um, Call-in shows have to be live, but a lot of programs don't. And so the trick, I think, is going to be actually figuring out how to maintain terrestrial broadcasting in an on-demand world, because podcasts feel like the next natural extension of a world where everybody wants to get everything they want when they want it. Um, And so, you know, I think podcasts have been successful especially generated by public radio stations like WNYC has its own podcast unit. NPR has some of the most successful podcasts out there because we know how to make audio. Mm. And so it's a natural transition to on-demand audio into the platform of podcasting. Um, But I think that there are some things that will never work for podcasting very well. And public radio is going to have to figure out how to thread that needle and do some things that are on-demand, knowing that people can bypass the underwriters and bypass the station and the local station and what we can do that's local and newsy and live and makes people want to also still be connected to their terrestrial radios. Mm, interesting. Mm. I mean, I, I've found that, you know, we see it in terms of the co-working interest and people not working at home in that, um, you know, culturally we're, we're seeking out this human-to-human connection again. And, and through authentic experiences that are shared or uh, narratives that are passed along, whether it's business or, uh, you know, potholes, um, 
stories, um, that that seems to be a moment in time. It's it's sort of the, we're going a bit more old school analog versus the the full digital interaction. And um, and in terms of digesting content, yeah, you're right. I want to binge watch my Netflix series. I want to download a bunch of podcasts and just blaze through them on my road trip. Right. Right. Or I, you know, I only caught half of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and I want to hear all of it, so I'm going to listen on the podcast while I go for a run. You know, you, I think there's a good balance to have for both. That, and I think the delays in all the airports just really <laughs> feed into this. You're I, doing a lot more traveling than I am. <laughs> um, so, Jane, one of the things that Dave and I want to ask you for our own selfish reasons, really, is how you've grown, but why out of state? You mentioned that was sort of one of the big things um, that was sort of a differentiator for you guys and, and important. So how, how have you done that? When I was thinking about, when I started, I knew I wanted to do a podcast. And so I knew that there was going to be something that I wanted to do in the podcasting world. I knew I was going to have to pitch it to VPR as something that I could do on top of my full-time job hosting Vermont Edition. I knew that it had to be something that could gain traction or it wasn't going to succeed. So with all of those things in mind, as I started to think about, you know, what's the right format and what's the right audience, kids programming seemed like an area where there was very little happening. There were some great shows like Brains On out of Minnesota Public Radio, but it was really an undersaturated market. And so I felt like, okay, so kids programming is an area where we could come in and people could find us because they're going to want podcasts for kids. They're going to want the same thing for their kids that they can get for adult listening or that they can get on television. And so, and then I knew I had to be able to do it efficiently. So, you know, kids ask us questions. We don't have to go find the questions. Um, And that was one of the ways that we grew it was just by, by putting it into a market where there was demand and not a lot of saturation. Mm. So we knew parents would start to find us because they would want to find something. And there were very few shows at the time. It's, it's much, there are a lot more kids shows now than there were even when we started in April of 2016. And because we were asking kids to send in their questions and we seeded it with some kids that we knew from various states they then share within their own networks, like my kids on this show, listen to this program. And so we got some organic growth that way. And we really did no marketing at all other than, you know, organic marketing or a couple of sponsored Facebook posts. And we were able to continue to see that really large audience growth month over month, just from word of mouth and just from this idea that people were trying to find kids programming. Um, and then I think also it really helps to be affiliated with VPR, to have it be a VPR podcast, because we were talking about trust earlier. People know that they can trust public radio. So that already comes along with it, a sort of stamp of quality and approval that if a public radio station is putting this out, it's got to be okay for my kid. Right, and it's not helps. a sugary drink. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. I don't, And I don't need to know, like, what am I getting here? Like, I already know something about the style and quality and then – that's sort of the entry point for or people. you. I mean, anyone that listens to Vermont Edition that has kids is probably also listening to about why, right? I mean, uh, yeah, there's I don't be know. A lot of overlap. Yeah, I think there is. We've had some, you know, we've had a lot of great uh, live events in Brattleboro and other places that people have said, "Oh, yeah, I got to you from Vermont Edition." But I think the audiences are actually quite separate. Hmm. We went to Brattleboro too. With we took start here on the road um, and visited the circus. Oh, cool. Oh. That's so cool. Yeah, we really need to go back. We have to go back now that the trapeze, was it trapezium? Yeah. The indoor trapeze thing that they have. It's crazy. I don't know about that. It's pretty cool. Wow. 
But twins. why? You need to go there for that. It's an indoor trapeze school. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that'd like, be awesome. Like, it's like the most legitimate playground I think you can ever envision totally. for adults, basically. <laughs> so um, how come you don't see yourself as an entrepreneur? You mentioned that, I think, to me uh, before we got on the air. I mean, you're, you're, you're going for something. You think there's a need. You put in the work. You've taken the bets. Like, Is that like a dirty word in media, no. being an entrepreneur? Or? No, not at all. I don't feel like I'm worthy of Ooh. it. <laughs> No, not a dirty word. That was insulting. I mean, I told you, I I came from a family where everybody studied English and literature because everybody in my family were teachers. And so, you know, I I already am sort of out on a limb as a journalist. And nobody in my family really is in business. And so it's not that it's a dirty word, but I've often thought about, you know, what jobs did I as a kid think were like legitimate jobs for me to think about pursuing? And I just didn't know anything other than teaching and academia. And... I think about that now, like, oh, what choices would I have made differently if I'd had other role models mm. or other ways of thinking about, like, starting a business? It's just such a foreign concept to me. And so I think I don't think of myself as an entrepreneur because I don't feel like I have the skills or the knowledge or the drive to create something new. And also because I've never done something where it was my financial risk. Other than taking a job where you think, is this going to work out, you know, moving across the country right. to come back to Vermont, sure, that's risky. But it's never, I've never been in a situation where I had to put my money forward and have no safety net if it failed. And right. I feel like that's a lot of how I think of entrepreneurship. That's exactly right. I mean, that's a big risk. How did you get to the point to make that leap? Which of, leap? Of taking the financial risk, because that's often with, you know, Sam and I work with over 200 startups of all types, big tech to people making socks to you name it. And, you know, it, they're all trying to figure out how do I get to that point, like to, to really write the check or take out the loan or ask someone else for, for money? I don't know. I don't know how you get to that point. And I, I wonder if I'll ever feel financially stable enough to do that kind of thing myself. I often think of it as something that's a rich person's game. And I know that's not true, and we've talked about that, but it feels like there's so much more risk if you don't have a cushion financially, whether it's your own savings or a family that can help you out or, you know, a home that feels safe and stable. And I don't know how people who are not already financially wealthy or independent can make that kind of move. That's one of the things that I fear about this whole world of entrepreneurship, that it's something that's available to a certain class of people. Well, it's certainly declining. I mean, actually, the Kauffman Foundation talks about this decline. And, you know, one of the theories, I think it's valid, is just the the levels of student debt. Yeah. You know, there, there are almost two generations that can't afford to take the leap. And I think, too, like, that's why we're seeing in Vermont almost always folks, it's a side hustle Yeah, for the first, how you know, sometimes years. Like, I've been working on this for, you know, five years. I work full time. I have a kid. I do this. And so you come to Visa at, you know, 8 o'clock at night. There's people here working. And um, it definitely takes a certain type of person. I mean, I tell entrepreneurs all the time, I, I don't want to start my own business. I'm just not that type of person. I mm-hmm. need to know what's going to happen next. I, I don't do a great job um, sort of managing uncertainty. Um, so I don't know. It's it's I I think you have a lot of the qualities, though. I think that's why Dave and I were kind of asking that, because Things like getting your former employer to pay for you to go to 
you know, Thailand or whatever it was. Like, that's an entrepreneur move. The plane ticket I've home. Was the plane exactly. ticket home that's I was most <laughs> impressed with. Yeah. Did, did you have a, a, a mentor, a business mentor, or, or as you were contemplating about why or even now to... No, but I had um, um, my that woman who hired me for my first job was my main mentor. Um, the woman at NPR, Caroline Jensen, Carolyn Jensen, was such a wonderful mentor to me in terms of thinking of myself as smart enough to do these jobs and good enough to do them. And so I've never had a business mentor, but I definitely felt like I had this supportive mentor early in my career who said, I really think that you're talented and I think you can go far and here are the skills that I can help you with and what do you need to be successful? And to have that kind of person have your back early on was really, really wonderful and important for me. So true. Um, one of the things that I know we're running low on time already. I knew this was going to happen. Um, it's a podcast. You can go as long I mean, as you want. Yeah, that's true. Totally, Who are we kidding? Totally. Jane's episode two and a half <laughs> hours later. Um, so one of the questions that Dave and I ask people, and like you're such a great person to ask because you talk to so many people. How? What is your sense of Vermont's sort of innovation ecosystem? Do you think that we have certain sort of strengths or weaknesses? Are you optimistic about the future in our state? I'm optimistic about the future in our state. I think it's it would be hard to do my job if I wasn't, but I also try to feel Great like point. a realist. Right. Um, we did a show recently on broadband in Vermont, and you know, I just I don't know how we're going to be truly successful and accessible to have the state feel accessible to people, not people coming into the state because that's an issue. But those people already have mobility. But I'm but I mean the Vermonters who are here who want to do the kind of work that you guys. Right focus on and highlight and celebrate and the kind of, I mean, any job now, even if you want to do school, you have to have access to internet. And I live in a place that doesn't have very high speed internet. And it's a problem for us. You know, I I could never work from home because there's no way I could upload audio from my internet connection and get it to VPR and get it back. That needs to to change. I just, there was a ranking out yesterday. We're in a, we're one of the the worst five states in the country for for average speeds. Yeah, um, and they're working on it, you know. And I hope it, I hope it gets there for competitive reasons. I think we'll, we'll see. This is how aging in place will happen for right. our, ourselves and our parents, and and education delivered in the gig economy. Because you know, declining population. Like, how do we access people that are here that maybe can work part the part of the day? Yeah, and we shouldn't have to force everybody to live in Burlington in order to be successful entrepreneurs or successful business people. And and yet people can't access the resources they need in other parts of the state. And um, Sam, you mentioned people having a side hustle. And yeah, that's how so many of us get started. But if you can't really run a website to sell whatever it is that you're making, you know, how are you going to be able to be successful and see what your product or what your design or what your, you know, your business could be? And so that's one of the things that I really worry about is just that accessibility. But then, you know, I can, I can spin my mind out really quickly and, and lose that sense of optimism because I'm also concerned about how do we have a transportation infrastructure that does not contribute more to climate change? You know, how do we have public transportation and do we need to have a state where actually more people do live in the cities or in town centers rather than that sort of um, outside rural kind of infrastructure that we currently have? And these are big ideas that we're going to have to grapple with. Have you been on an electric scooter yet? 
No, I haven't. Oh my god, it'll change your life. Like line bikes, like. <laughs> but I live on e-bikes a dirt road. Are, e-bikes are so yesteryear. <laughs> like so scooters. They I don't make, even know if we're going to be able to teach my son how to ride a bike. He's five now, because like we potholes, live on a yeah a, we live on a dirt road with potholes. I don't even know how to we'll put know a how life to make preserver on yeah. for this time of year with the potholes. So, oh my gosh, we could go on and on, Sam. We certainly could. Okay, magic wand time, please. Um, if there was one thing you could change about Vermont, what would it be? I wish we were more honest about our class differences and how they affect our culture. I think we're starting to do a better job of talking about race and racism in Vermont, and we still don't acknowledge that we have real class divides and cultural divides that are built around socioeconomic status and class, and that because we don't have those conversations, we're not addressing what that actually means for our state and for our communities and for how we interact with one another. And I think especially liberal, white, upper-class Vermonters think of themselves as very open-minded and are in so many ways, and yet don't acknowledge their own biases or barriers around people of lower socioeconomic status. And I think that's a conversation that is going to require some bravery and honesty and a little bit of uncomfortable pushing, but I really I think our state would be better for having that conversation more honestly. Especially a state with such a small population. It's so clear, um, but you're right, it's, it's not talked about. I lived for a little while before my husband and I bought a house and moved to Moncton in Addison County where we could afford a house. We rented in Charlotte, and we lived in an apartment above a house that was owned by two people who had lived in Vermont through many generations, and they were not treated very well by the people who had come in and lived in this sort of Tony area. And because our neighbors thought that my husband and I were related to this family, they wouldn't wave or acknowledge us when we used our shared driveway. And I remember thinking, if they knew who I worked for, if they knew who I was, we'd be invited over for a cocktail. But because they think that we're part of this quote-unquote white trash family, they're not going to talk to us. And that's you know going back again to how people interpret who you are based on what they think you are. And it really gave me this sense of people don't acknowledge their own biases around social class. And I just... I think it's damaging. Totally damaging. Um, for the record, you're invited to V-Set anytime for a cocktail. <laughs> you have cocktails here? Oh, yeah. Uh, more Coffee, than we like cocktails. to acknowledge, you know. Uh, first Friday's coming up. VPR so. West. Yeah. Oh, wouldn't that be fun? We would love that. Jane, thank you so much for taking time out to just share your story a little bit and talk to us. Basically, it's a training session for Sam and I. We yeah. weren't. We got to ask you questions. I know. I hope I did okay. You did great. No, thank you for having me again. I, you know, I I wasn't sure quite how I fit into a podcast about entrepreneurship, but I really appreciate it. Well, you do. I mean, Vermont is is dotted with um, creatives, right, that are trying to figure out um, how they grow their business, how they make a living, how they share their views. And and we're going to spend a little bit of time with Bill Schubart was recent and and some others that um, have, have done it. People who start things in that category. (laughs) Yeah, and you know what? You could start here. (gasps) Boom! Nailed it. This has been Start Here with Sam and Dave, a podcast sharing stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. This series has been made possible by the Vermont Technology Council and Consolidated Communications. 
Please follow us on Twitter at VSET. That's V-C-E-T. Thanks for listening. Please support public radio, and let's get back to work. <laughs>